Also, in your worship booklet, there should be a loose leaf that says Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. You can go ahead and pull that out. It has the sermon text as well as kind of a red main argument that I think Psalm 59 holds out for us this morning. Um, This is in the same genre we've been looking at. Psalm 59 is a lament. Um, I do think this one holds out some unique things for us. That's going to be the bulk of my time in this text with you, is showing you the uniqueness of this lament over and against the other four or five we've already looked at and the ones coming up. Um, A lament, I use the the definition from a pastor here in the city named Mark Rogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, a book on lament. He defined lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Or Roger's um, language during our confession of sin, that a lament is a, is a prayer, it's a song that takes us from a state of disorientation, confusion, pain, questioning, to reorientation and calm trust in our Savior. So we're looking at another lament this morning, Psalm 59. Many of you may not be aware, but I, um, I had the joy and the privilege of playing bass guitar in a band throughout college. We toured most of the Midwest as well as along the East Coast. We played in coffee shops, churches. We were at a couple of big uh, outdoor music festivals, one of them being Ichthus. That was my most favorite, although it was a sweaty mess. Um, we had a pro- professionally produced full-length album as well as two EPs. It was a joy, but out of all of those things, the most fun was always playing a show playing in front of live people, whether a small venue or hundreds of people. And specifically, the joy was playing a show in which people loved your music and sang the lyrics you wrote back to you. There's something special about it. Um, The the band consisted of a bunch of Christians from various backgrounds. Um, We actually might be getting back together for a a show in September. That might be fun. Um, But they were all Christians. We wrote, uh, the, the genre of music would have been like Christian, rock, indie, folk. Um, but one of our songs would always stop people and get everyone's attention. It was my favorite part of our shows when we would play this song, whether we were at a coffee shop and we only kind of had everyone's, you know, one ear as they're talking and enjoying coffee, or whether we were at a big venue and people talked between songs or like that outdoor music festival where people talked the entire time before, during, and after your songs. Um, this experience was true across the board. There would come a time when our lead singer and acoustic guitar player would introduce a song we wrote called Metaphor. And he would say something like this. Well, this next song we're going to play for you is called Metaphor. It's a song I wrote about my two-decade war against lust and pornography. Period. And it was a similar response as that. Everybody would stop talking and, excuse me? Gulp, like a a room-wide gulp, rapt attention. Then he'd start with his intro lick, which also included him playing harmonica. But it was a song about the danger of lust. What repeated views of pornography and lust and how it damages your spouse and family, and specifically the metaphor piece of the song was the hand of the devil in you doing that. In conjunction with your sin, in conjunction with your fallenness, absolutely. But that song concludes, and then we usually tag a couple songs on after that, which would share the only hope that anyone has in that moment or in whatever sin pattern you have is Christ Jesus. 
He would share, after that, our lead singer would share his years, multi-year of sobriety and purity from lust as he walked closely with Jesus. That was a, a sweet memory, not only just because of the utter silence and the rapt attention we would have in those moments, but also because we got to hold out hope to people. It was not uncommon for people to be emotionally and visibly moved as they were relating to the words of our lead singer, but we got to hold out the beauty of Christ, the forgiveness of sins that are offered in him, and, and we held out for them hope that, you know, empowered by the Holy Spirit, there's hope for change. There's hope to overcome whatever sin pattern you have. I tell you that because I had a similar experience and thought, whether comical or not, it was kind of serious, at least in my mind, uh, as I was studying Psalm 59 this week. I envisioned King David as a coffee shop musician. I imagined him as a singer-songwriter playing some tunes on his guitar and harmonica, maybe even with a small kit behind him, a kick drum and snare and hi-hat with a couple strings. But in the middle of the show, he would dismiss the band behind him, go ahead and have a seat, and David would say, this next song I'm going to play for you is a tough one for me. I wrote it about a time in which my father-in-law tried to murder me. And then he'd begin playing. Everyone stops singing, and, and the baristas uh, pause making their coffee. Rapt attention, like, what is this song going to look like? David might say, you know, this song is called Psalm 59, and play the song. It's a song about fear and pain when enemies surround you. It's a song that begs, quite literally, for God's intervention when those enemies seem near. And then the song, like many of the laments, holds out hope for us, the hope that is only in the Lord, and that is that in Christ we are utterly secure, completely safe and secure, even though it doesn't make sense. Why? Because God himself is our fortress, our shield, and our refuge. And in a real sense, I think that is what Psalm 59 holds out to us. It is a lament, it's a, it's a song though. Remember these psalms are prayer songs. They're songs that are prayer. And this one in particular describes for us what it might look like in the midst of fear and danger and anxiety, what trust might look like for us. And the main argument for, of Psalm 59 is that I think God's steadfast love should be a source of great comfort when enemies surround Let's see if that holds true as we walk our way through Psalm 59. The way I'm going to do this this morning, we're going to read this back and forth. You should see bold text, so if everyone has your sermon insert, some of the lines are bold. That's not because they're extra special, but that's what you're going to read out loud. So we'll read this responsively. Let's just do verses 1 through 10. So I'll start us with verse 0, the superscription, and we will read this back and forth to one another. Psalm 59. We're just going through verse 10. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mictum of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. 
You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. We'll read the rest later, but I wanted to pause there because this first section of our time together will be focusing on the content of those verses. Most of our time will be spent here, and then we'll, we'll uh, spend a, a brief amount of time on the, the second half of Psalm 59. But first, I just want you to, to notice the enemies. We're focusing our study, and you're like, wow, I'm really glad I came to New City this morning. We're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about enemies. And then secondly, at the, the back half, we'll talk about God's steadfast love and how that should be a hope in the midst of enemies surrounding. But I think there's going to be good news for us here. So first, notice the historical context. Um, we've been looking at uh, a lot of psalms in the 50s that are not only laments, but they also have that, um, it's either probably in italics or in a different font, right next to the number, which I've been calling the superscription. Those are uh, often, they're all included in the original Hebrew, but many of them in the 50s here have given us a historical context for when the song was written. Um, we, can make most, we can make sense of most of them, though not all of them. This one's an easier one to make sense of. It says, to the choir master, according to do not destroy. Again, we're not exactly sure what do not destroy is. The leading argument is likely that's some sort of tune, some sort of, of chant, rhythm that they would have understood that they sung this one to. Again, we're not exactly sure, but that's the leading candidate. When was this written? When Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Okay, scholars are almost unanimous and they agree that this is 1 Samuel 19. Okay, 1 Samuel 19, if you've been spending time in Samuel, you would know that, hey, Taylor, that's only two chapters after 1 Samuel 17. But what's in 1 Samuel 17? Anybody? Goliath. This is two chapters after David slays Goliath. So just as a reminder, David is a young man at best. He's not king yet, and he has just killed taken down Goliath, the enemy of God who's portrayed as serpent-like, connected to Psalm 58 last week, if you recall. David's young, he's not king, but God has given him a great victory. When David comes to the aid of his brothers and hears this, this giant Goliath shouting profanities at God's people, David's like, who's going who's gonna to stop this? Why are you guys all quiet? And so this little boy, the young man, goes to battle, one of the greatest enemies this, this mighty warrior of the Philistines. He takes him down with a stone and then cuts off his head. God has given victory. The Philistine enemy, Goliath, has fallen. Now that's 17. What happens in 18 is then they start headed home. All of Israel, the armies, all the men start, start walking back home. And the narrative tells us that as the army is returning, all of Israel comes out of their houses and starts singing songs Specifically, the narrative draws attention to all of the women. 
It's all of the women all over the place start coming out of the woodworks to sing God's praises, to sing these songs as the men are returning. What's the song they sing? This one. I won't sing it for you, don't worry, but it's Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. From that moment on, friends, that is a turning point. Saul doesn't like David anymore. That's putting it lightly. Saul hates David now. King Saul hates the young man David. He tries to kill David a number of times, and one of those attempts on David's life is the background to Psalm 59. You see, David goes on to marry Saul's daughter, Michal. And Saul sends people to kill David. They lie in wait outside his house, and they're planning to take his life when he steps out. Get rid of this competition to my throne, Saul's thinking. The plan, however, becomes known to David, and he escapes through a window and gets away. But David is facing real enemies here. He has flesh and bone faces when he says, deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Real human faces and leaders that want him dead. He's literally surrounded by enemies. And he pins this song for us. That puts real weight to verses 1 and 2, doesn't it? Deliver me. Protect me. Deliver me. Save me. Now I assume that most of us in this room do not relate to David on that, that point. And what I mean by that is most of us probably have never experienced enemies surrounding your house waiting for you to step out so they can shoot you or spear you. Literally, enemies waiting to take your life the moment you are vulnerable. Maybe you have, truly, I don't know. But most of us probably have not been able to relate to David here. But I think if we just keep it on that level, we're going to miss something that Psalm 59 holds out for us. Something that I think specifically can be gleaned from the entire book of Psalms. And that is that the word enemy, or enemies, is used more than 70 times in the Psalms. God's inspired songbook includes the word enemy or enemies every other song. There's a lot of enemies in the Psalms. Over and over and over again, I think the prayer-er, or the singer of these Psalms, should have content for when those enemies circle around us. And remember the point of David here. This is, where, this is very important, and then we'll shift it to us. To attack David is to attack God. To attack God's anointed king is to attack the Lord himself. To oppose God's king is to oppose the Lord himself. There is that close of a connection between God and his anointed king, the anointed one. That's the word Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the Christ in Greek. Seeing now with much more clear eyes that Jesus the Christ, the the one to whom David pointed, to oppose Christ is to oppose God. He is God. And then God's people, us, are called the body of Christ. Friends, to oppose the church is to oppose God. Not in some institutional way. I mean, to to be enemies of the people of God, those who are following Jesus, is to oppose God. And so I think this psalm holds out some hope to us. 
just in these opening verses here, again, maybe you have related to David. Maybe you can. Someone's tried to, to physically take your life. If that is you, then friends, let the words of Psalm 59 be your words. Let the words of Psalm 59 warm your heart. God is in the midst of that with you. You weren't alone. He was there. But even if we're not exactly like David, I I can't really relate to enemies surrounding my house in order to kill me. I do think that we are more familiar with enemies than you think. Um, I think at least in two ways. You might just get one of these in second service. We'll get them both. But I want you to see one that enemies do surround you. They do. They may not just be flesh and bones people with spears and sword, but you have enemies. And the second thing, and this is what I might say for second service, but I actually wonder if you should have a little bit, a, a, a little more enemies in your life. Living faithfully for Christ will often do that. We'll see how time rolls out. But the first thing I want you to, to see is that enemies do surround you. Enemies surround you. That's why Psalm 59, I think, is for us. Because if we rightly understand enemies to include anything opposed to God and his people, and therefore anything opposed to the flourishing of God's people, anything desiring to do you harm, oh, enemies do in fact circle around you, don't they? The first way I see these enemies that you do have manifesting itself in our lives is that enemies can include general things. Circumstances, ways of thinking, social pressures, even decisions you've made or decisions that other people have made that are opposed to the word of God. Opposed to the church's flourishing. Things that seek to harm you. So what what might those be? What do you feel in your life is pressing in on you? Seeking your Harm, longing maybe to lull you to spiritual apathy. Oh, if I could just make you a little lazy. Those are true enemies to your life and to your soul. Enemies that might be encircling you today might be your mental health. The battle with darkness that seems to rear its head so often. Maybe you have various enemies that are encircling your marriage. Stressors of life. Maybe it's other men and other women competing for your love. Maybe it's your enjoyment of pornography. Those are enemies, and sometimes I wonder if they're actually more dangerous than somebody with a spear. Maybe it's harshness or passivity, husbands. Both equally wicked. Maybe it's refusal to honor, love, and follow. Wives, what are the stressors, the enemies that are encircling your marriage? Maybe it's a tough financial situation. It can be an enemy. Or all of the worldviews and ideologies that attempt to move us toward the world. Just to get us a, a little off of Jesus so that over time we're not just a little off, we're way off. Whether they're spat at us from Disney or universities or scientists or other sources, what are the worldviews competing against Christ in your life? Or maybe it's a diagnosis or prognosis. 
When we start recognizing that enemies can be anything like that, you, you have more than you think, don't you? Because friends, our world is not neutral to the things of God. We don't live in a neutral world. We live in a place where worldviews and people themselves are opposed to the declaration that Christ is Lord. And all of those ideologies and all of those people and all of those worldviews are enemies. And so we have enemies that surround us, enemies that are encircling us, and it may look a little different from David, but I don't think it's inappropriate for us to think like this. So how do we pray? How do we pray in the face of marital difficulties, financial struggles, worldviews that are all around us that are wicked? Deliver me from my enemies. Oh my God. Protect me. Deliver me and save me. But the, the second way that I think enemies, and this is much more clear to us in the New Testament, that you do in fact have enemies more than you think, is in the unseen spiritual forces of darkness that have set themselves against the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is closely connected to last week's psalm where we were looking, we had a brief break from a lament psalm and instead got to look at a psalm of imprecation, cursing the enemies of God. But you might recall I made extended uh, application there for us that in the New Testament, those psalms, those imprecatory psalms as we call them, the, the cursing psalms, can be applied and prayed against dark and demonic forces of the enemy. That's exactly what the New Testament tells us. That we do not war, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our greatest threat is no longer people surrounding our house with, with sword and spear like David, but we wrestle against principalities and powers, unseen forces of darkness in the heavenly places. We even thought through and talked about when we see tragedy, whether it's school shootings or these wicked ideologies or uh, broken marriages and sinful actions and genocide and wars. Friends, those aren't just sinful people, though that's true. That is darkness. There are unseen, dark, angelic beings behind all of those things, influencing worldviews, ideologies, and poor decisions of leaders. So how do we have enemies? Not only is our world and the ideas of our world not neutral, but there are actually invisible creatures of darkness that I don't pretend to understand all of them that seek to undo you. That seek to influence our world and seek to influence non-Christians against the things of God and against the flourishing of his people. Oh, friends, we have enemies. And again... When those enemies surround us, when those dark forces in the unseen realm surround and influence and whisper that seek to undo us and to harm us, what do we pray? Maybe try verses 8 through 10. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. It's a phrase hearkening us back to the opening psalms, specifically Psalm 2. There's a lot of similarity between Psalm 59 and Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is the Davidic psalm, uh, the psalm of the king, where it's a command to the nations. You need to bow down to the king. You need to kiss the son lest he be angry. 
You nations, you meditate and plot against the things of God, but the Lord holds you in derision and laughs at you. I love the image of the Lord laughing at the best that the world can do. All of the enemies of God seeking to undo him and to harm his people, he laughs. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, oh Lord, verse 9, are my fortress. That's what we pray when we see aright the number of enemies that we have. So far we've seen the enemies surround us as they surrounded David. It looks a little different for us, but secondly, I want to hold out to us a hope. What specifically brings David comfort? I can just imagine him. Whether he's in the living room about to escape or whether he's crawling out of his window to get away, what is it that ultimately encourages David's heart? It's the love of God for him. This is verses 11 through 17. Let's do what we did last time. We'll read this back and forth responsively. I'll start for us in verse 11. You read the bold. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. I didn't say this earlier, but this is the word of the Lord. The two things that comfort the psalm singer here in this passage is in fact the steadfast love of God, which we'll conclude with in just a few moments, but there is something else that does comfort David here, and that is the just judgment of God on evil. God will judge the wicked. All who oppose Christ, if we, if we read this through a New Testament lens, all who oppose Jesus will face the righteous punishment of God due for their sin. The way we like to say it is the Lord will make all things right in the end. Unless we forget, the Lord making all things right is not a sweeping things under the rug. God is just. Your sin and your rebellion can be satisfied in Jesus' work in your place or on you. And the latter is not a happy ending. But I want you to see not just that that's true, but that the truth that God is just and will judge evildoers, he will make all things right in the end, permeates scripture, the Psalms and elsewhere, and when it's brought up, it's always to the encouragement of us. 
It's always to the encouragement of God's people. Just this past week, I was praying through Psalm 94. It's the psalm that I was in for that day, and it triumphantly ends. This is Psalm 94 with these words. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, God? A throne that brings on misery by its decrees? No, God will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord will destroy them. Imagine singing that right after our lament psalm this morning. But these biblical prayers, these declarations that God is good, that God will avenge, that God will restore everything to his children, and that those who reject his rule and reign will be judged is for our comfort. It should do something for us to know that the Lord will make all things right in the end. Those banners behind us are true. But the second thing David is comforted by is the reality not only that God will judge wrongdoing, but that God has steadfast love for his people. It's repeated in the psalm. It started back in verse 10. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. That word meet there is beautiful. It's a personal word for someone coming to greet and embrace you. In the midst of enemies surrounding, David's like, oh, but God is going to come personally and embrace me with love. What do I have to fear? It's repeated in the crescendo of the psalm at the end there. David can't help but sing of God, his strength. He says, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. And then again, the last phrase of the psalm, God is my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. We've repeated this here many a time, that word steadfast love in the ESV, it's just the Hebrew word hesed. It's more like hesed. Um, it speaks of God's covenant love. His unbreaking and unbreakable, permanent, never giving up, tender, particular love for his people. It's a love that doesn't run out. It's a love that doesn't run away. It's unbreakable and binding and good and beautiful. And when enemies surround, enemies of all kinds all types, it's the covenantal, steadfast love of God that ought to strengthen your heart, brother, sister. What should give you confidence and trust in the Lord? It's that the creator and redeemer of the universe loves you. Even when you don't love yourself, he likes you, calls you his friend, and armed with that truth, whatever the circumstances, to know that the Lord is near and he's by your side, and oh, he's the God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, should bring us confidence. His rod and his staff should comfort us, even if we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23. It's that presence of our loving and covenantal God that ought to be good news for us. Even when all we can see are the enemies. And God, that, 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 that love of God, his nearness, his presence is something that we get to see so much more clearly now, don't we? David has a grasp of God's covenantal love. That is that God's made promises to me, he's gonna deliver. God sees this situation and he's in the midst of it with me and that brought great comfort to David. But friends, we get to see even more clearly now David could only grasp at what we know now in Jesus Christ. 
a love that is on display for us, more clearly told to us in the New Testament scriptures. We now have more vision of what it means that God loves his own with a covenantal, unbreaking, steadfast love, don't we? Because that love, when you're seeing it and reading it and singing it in the Psalms, is a person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. This steadfast love is what the well-known verse, John 3.16, is getting at. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That first phrase there, as I've mentioned before, for God so loved the world, literally and beautifully in the original Greek says that it's in this way God loves the world. By sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our sin substitute, to die the death that we deserved to die, and in return, his righteousness and perfection gets credited to our account. And his resurrection, when he burst forth from the grave, is the beginning of new creation, a new creation that we get to taste now, but that has secured our future. So what can flesh do to me? An earlier psalm cries out take your life, that's it, and then I get everlasting life and joy evermore. I quoted John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16 is just as beautiful and wonderful for us seeing with New Testament eyes even more clearly the steadfast love of the Lord because he says, by this we know God's love, that he laid down his life for us. I'm on a First John kick, so chapter 4 also, First John 4, verse 9 says, In this, the love of God, so think steadfast love, was made manifest among us. It was revealed. It was made clear to us. How is the love of God made clear to you? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It's a long word that just means wrath-appeasing sacrifice, a sin-atoning sacrifice. So when we read, we get to say with louder volume, with more exclamation points, oh my strength, I will sing praises to you because you, oh God, are not only my fortress, but you're the one who shows me steadfast love. The steadfast love is Jesus In your place condemned he stood, risen for you and in your stead so that we get pleasures forevermore and get to walk and do this life, even if enemies are surrounding, knowing the steadfast love of God and the security that we have in Christ. And as a reminder that we get to go through, not not, not go through the motions, but, but we get to remember as we go to the table, a table of God's steadfast love. A table that preaches to our taste buds and our ears and our touch and our sight and our smell. The love of God. The covenantal love of God in and through Jesus Christ. His work in our place. And so friends, we are going to go to the table and do exactly that. As a family, remember God's love for us. If I can just make a pastoral aside too, in just a moment we'll exit our rows as we always do. Exit this way, go to the back of the room and an elder or deacon or deaconess will give you the bread. 
and either red wine or white grape juice. Bring the elements back to your seats and partake together. Um, but I'd like to invite Tim up. Tim's going to be playing a song behind us. I just want to encourage you to slow down. Um, we do go up against a second service, so you can't go incredibly slow. But I would encourage you to go a little slower than normal. Don't rush through this. Preach to yourself the steadfast love of God. Go through John 3.16 in your mind as you're looking at bread and wine and partake of these elements with Jesus. Friends, this is a Christian meal, so if you are not in Christ, if you have not entrusted yourself to him alone, if you're not trusting in the steadfast love of Jesus, I would encourage you just to wait. Just, just stay seated. It's not uncommon for people to remain seated during this time, but this is a Christian meal, a, a meal for the family. If you've entrusted yourself to Jesus and are following him as imperfect as you are, then you are welcome to this table to be encouraged in the steadfast love of God. Let me pray for us and you can go receive your elements and bring them back to your seats. Lord God, you are good and kind to us. You are better than life. And I pray now that you, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, would be spiritually present with us now as we come to the table, that you would encourage our hearts. Remind us of your goodness and your love, regardless of whatever the enemies might look like that are around us right now. Encourage our hearts to your glory, Jesus, and for our good. In your name I pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, when you're prepared, receive your elements and bring them back to your seat.